one of my favorite Robert De Niro films and just one of the greatest soundtracks of all time is a movie called The Mission from the 80s. Um, the, the, the film is set in South America, 1700s, and Robert De Niro plays this mercenary, Spanish mercenary, who is there um, as part of the slave trade, getting rich on capturing native people and sending them off to be slaves. Uh, at the beginning of the film, you see him like indiscriminately killing, beating destroying whole villages of native people and he seems to be perfectly happy about it and then early on in the film though something happens he comes home from one of these escapades and he finds his younger brother is sleeping with his woman and he flies off the handle he's enraged and he goes and he kills his younger brother and then it hits him what he's just done he's killed the one person in the world that he truly loves at this point, his life just crumbles in on itself. He realizes who he is. He realizes what he's become. He realizes that he's killed everything he loves. And he's just crushed by guilt, shame, self-hatred. And he wants to go off and just be left to die. And when he's sitting there all alone, his life crumbling around him, then along comes Jeremy Irons, this Jesuit priest. Who, who comes up to him and tries to share with him the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the gospel. But, um, but De Niro will have nothing to do with it. He does not want forgiven. He doesn't want to let go of that. He explicitly wants to pay for his own sins. And at this moment, something happens. The priest says to him, okay, try it. Try to earn your forgiveness. Try to pay for your own sins. What would you do? What would you dare to give yourself as a penance to pay for your own sins? And so and then the next scene, you see De Niro following the priest high up into the jungles, and they're going to serve the very native of people that he had been enslaving. They're going to serve the very people that he had been killing and murdering and ravaging. And behind him, as they travel up into these mountains, behind him you see this giant clump of metal and rope and things dragging behind De Niro. What he's done is he's literally taken his armor, his weapons, everything that represented his violence, his past sins, everything, he's made it into a giant burden that he is dragging, that he feels that he must drag through life until he's earned his forgiveness. And I'm not the type of guy who like watches a movie and gets choked up. But this scene always wrecks me because he, he's literally dragging behind him his past sins. And this goes on and on. You watch him as he's, he's going through these mountains and he has this giant rope across him. It's, it's cutting into his neck and he's trying, stumbling, falling with his burden behind him. And the journey is clearly too hard. Like it doesn't seem that he's going to make it. And the other priests who are with him, they say, God is not asking you to do this. You don't have to do this. But he ignores and he keeps going on. Another priest gets so frustrated with this that when they come to a cliff and he sees De Niro can't make it up the cliff, he, he cuts the rope and makes the burden fall but De Niro then goes back down to the bottom ties it around his own neck and begins dragging it again he can't let go of his past he won't let go of his past can you relate at all I can I know it's terrible theology I know I can't carry my own sins I know I can't pay the debt, and I know that God is not asking me to do this, but I get that. So over the past 10 years, 
Uh, as a pastor, as your pastor, I found that it's not just me and Robert De Niro who's dragging behind us our past sins. It's all of us. Addiction, adultery, abuse, dysfunctional families, failure, unfulfilled dreams, marital problems, doubts, depression, self-loathing, shame upon shame, estranged children, absent fathers. Do you know where I got that list? From you. From our congregation. That list is just a tip of the iceberg of the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us, the things that we are dragging behind us. And this, the things that you and I are dragging behind us in life, this is what I want to talk about today. We are in this series called Who Am I Becoming? where we're talking about how everything you do and think and and buy and choose and use and watch and the people you hang out with, all of those are forming us into something, either into more like Jesus or less like Jesus, more into the person we're created to be or less. And we charted it out from week one this way, that the stories we tell, the way we make sense of the universe, the way we make sense of our lives and ourselves and God, our relationships, those we connect with, our habits, the things we do automatically, without thinking, the environment we're in that encapsulates all this, not just what we do, but those around us, the whole environment, and our experiences over time, all of these things cumulatively are shaping us, are making us into someone or something. Today, I want to focus on this bottom line here. You'll notice there's there's a, a, a line of demarcation on this. Above, these are things we have high control over. This is something we do not have much control over. These are the things that we can choose to do. These are the things that happen to us more often than not. Today, I want to talk about our past experiences, and specifically, I want to talk about the part that we can control. I want to talk about how our response to and our perspective of our past experiences shapes who we are becoming. Now, quick disclaimer as we get into this, um, there are some real limitations to what we're about to do right now. I am not a counselor, and uh, a message like this will inevitably bring up things that are beyond my area of expertise. So here's what we've done. Um, I've taken this message and broke it into two parts. The first part, what we're going to do right now, we're going to dig into a Bible text because that's what I'm good at. That's what I do. I'm going to show you a biblical perspective on our experiences. But equally important is the second part. In the second part, we're going to get more clinical about this. Uh, it's an interview with the child and family therapist, Kelly Roudenbush, GVF member and therapist. This is what she does prof- professionally. She helps people understand their own experiences So she is going to be the expert in that. I'm going to show you the the biblical side of things. I would encourage you that to watch one part without the other is to miss half of what's happening here. Encourage you to watch both both of these parts. In both of these, here's the aim though. Two parts, one aim. We want to help you explore how your relationship with Jesus affects the way you see your past. Explore how your relationship with Jesus, your present understanding of who God is and what he's done for you in in your life, how that should shape the way you view past experiences. Our text for today is going to be Philippians chapter 3. I'll be focusing on verses 12 through 16. If you have a text, I would encourage you to follow along. Um, The first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3, 
which we're not going to get into in detail, are some of my favorite. If you haven't read those recently, I would encourage you, or are unfamiliar with them, I would encourage you to go back to them this week. They are a source of life and will very much complement what we're going to talk about today. In those 11 verses, the apostle describes in graphic detail, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, how when Jesus smashed into his life, it transformed something deep inside of him. It changed his heart. It turned his life upside down. And the things that were so important became rubbish to him, unimportant. The things that that he once despised became precious to him. Everything, his desires, his reason for getting out of bed in the morning, the very logic of of, of his life, his deepest loves, they were inverted when he met Jesus. Jesus changed everything for him. That's the first 11 verses. Now watch this, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect. And you can tell we're stepping into a conversation that's we're halfway in here. So not that I've already obtained what, Paul? And if you go back to verse 11, you see he's talking about resurrection. Resurrection. Verse 11 reads like this, just to set context for where we're headed. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul says, leading into this conversation, the one great thing that pulls me forward is the idea of resurrection. The one great thing that directs my life is that someday, somehow, I will become like Christ. To which we say, great. I hope to go to heaven when I die too. I hope to have an afterlife. Great. What does that have to do with anything? But the point here, I want you to hear this. For the Apostle Paul, resurrection is not just something that happens to you someday far off. It's not just something in the future. It's something that changes your life right now. When he talks about the power of resurrection, it's not just the power that will ultimately give you a new body and new life with God. It's the power that right now saves, heals, changes your life right now. It's the power that will raise you from the dead someday, but it's also the power that will transform your life right now. And he says, somehow what happened in the resurrection of Jesus will happen to everything. That's his hope. The things that seem hopelessly broken will be made whole. Situations that seem irreversible will be reversed. Wrongs will be made right. Death will give way to life. So here's the question that I want you to be asking right now as you think through your past. How do you undo abuse? How do you fix what my parents did to me? How do you solve unsolvable marital problems? How do you reverse the trauma you've experienced. And let me just be humbly honest on this. I don't know. It is a mystery. But the Christian hope is that somehow what happened to Jesus, the same way that you take a mangled, crucified Messiah, and somehow three days later, he rises victorious, imperishable, that somehow the unfixable was fixed, the irreversible was reversed, the dead came to life. That is the Christian hope. The Christian hope is not that we'll somehow get rid of the mess of our lives, all the problems, all the unfixable things. The Christian hope is that 
out of this mess, out of us, out of our broken lives, God is making something new, something imperishable, something resurrected. So with that context, verse 12 reads like this. Not that I've already obtained this, the resurrection, or that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You'll notice we highlighted one word, forgetting. So, one of these days, Lord willing, this pandemic's going to come to an end and we'll gather together as a church and we'll have like one of those big uh, pizza lunches or potlucks or something like that, like we love to have. And, you know, by that point, it'll have been months, maybe a year since you've seen some of these people and you'll be sitting around eating a piece of pizza and someone will come up to you and you know that person. You know their family, you know where they work, you know where they live, you know that person. They're going to come up to you being like, hey, how are you? And immediately, what's going to happen? You're going to be like, hey, you person, you, how are you? Because why? You cannot remember their name. Now, this is what we mean when we say forgetting. This cannot be what the Apostle Paul means when he says forgetting. How do I know this? Because in the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul does, spends a lot of time doing some very specific remembering. He doesn't just mean, so whatever he means by forgetting, he cannot mean that he's completely forgotten his past. Let's just, just for context sake, look back at verse 4. Five and six. He, this is how this reads in Philippians chapter three, verse starting in verse four. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I want you to see this here. This is not forgetting. This is a well-thought-out list of the seven things that have shaped the Apostle Paul's past. It's not only is he remembering his past, he's taking the time to organize them and summarize them in seven chronological and theologically escalating points here. It's like the Apostle Paul has spent a lot of time remembering his past right here. He's very specifically looked at them and not just the good things, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, not just the good things, not just his heritage, but he's also looking at some of the parts that are not so nice. Did you read this? As for zeal, persecuting the church. You know what that means, right? He killed Christians. He was a murderer. I'm guessing you've done some dark things. I'm guessing you've done some things that you can regret, but can you imagine? What's more about this list is that the Apostle Paul seems to think that this is exactly the type of thing, his past, his ugly parts of his past, this is exactly the type of thing that he should share with others. Here's what I mean. So when he, he sits down and writes a letter to Timothy, 
who's in Ephesus. He writes this letter, 1 Timothy is what we call it. He says, there are some trustworthy sayings. These are things that you should meditate on. You should hold in your heart. You should think about. He says, here's one of the trustworthy sayings that I want you to give to the, the Christians in Ephesus. Are you ready for it? Here's how it reads. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. One, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen? Amen. Two, of whom I am the worst. The Apostle Paul says, I want everyone at the church to meditate on this. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I want you to meditate on the fact that I'm one of the worst sinners ever. Meditate on that. Whatever that means, that's not what we usually mean by forgetting. Which begs the question, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says forgetting in Philippians chapter 3? And we pick up a couple clues in verses 15 and 16 here. He says this, back in Philippians chapter 3. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. This forgetting, everyone who's mature should, should, should both remember and forget the way he has done. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Whatever he means by forgetting, it has something to do with our view, with how we think of things. So in the Greek language, the language that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, um, it, this, this word view and this word um, think is the exact same Greek word. It is the word phreneo. Phreneo. This word is fairly rare in Greek. It only occurs like once in all of Jesus' teachings, but it is absolutely central to what's happening here in Philippians. The Apostle Paul, in fact, is borderline obnoxious with his use of the word phreneo. He says phreneo, 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 phreneo. He says it 10 times in this short letter, as in Philippians 2.5, you should have the same phreneo as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider himself um, equal to God. Phreneo is translated variously in all these places. It is the way of looking at things. It's your view. It's the way of thinking. It's the lens through which you see everything. It's the way you make sense of the world. It's your mindset. It's your perspective. So in verse 15, here's the key. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if someone on some point you think differently, those two words are the exact same in Greek. He's saying... All of us who are mature should have such a freneo of things. And if on some point you freneo differently, the Apostle Paul is beating this drum to say something very clear here. He's saying that your relationship with Jesus, this hope we have in the resurrection, this, this identifying with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, Philippians chapter uh, 3, the first half. He's saying that your relationship with Jesus should shape, should change, should affect the way you remember or don't remember your past. So, uh, Freneo, we kind of get this instinctively. It's just we usually don't use the word Freneo or we don't usually put this in theological terms. So, let's uh, put this in a different context. My mid to early 20s, up until my mid 20s, I did not like babies. Um, babies are fragile, things squirt out both ends, uh, they're cute, but I never wanted to be around a baby, never wanted to hold a baby, and as a pastor, it was kind of awkward, because everyone assumes that pastors like babies for some reason, I don't know, anyways, not a baby fan, not a baby fan, and then, and then, my wife Jenny got pregnant, 
and as her stomach grew, my heart grew. As things in her world started to change, my heart started to change. So we go there and we see the sonogram for the first time. And then we go start registering for baby things, like little booties and stuff. And then I start imagining what it'd be like to be a father. And then someday this little girl shows up into my life and I'm like acting all goofy and crawling on the floor and singing Dora the Explorer songs with the best of them. So what happened? Becoming parents didn't just change the way I spend my money or my time. It changed the way I viewed life itself. Freneo. Things that didn't make sense started making sense. Things that once seemed awful seemed a joy. Now, had I forgotten the babies are fragile and they squirt fluids and they scream and all that? No, no, I hadn't actually forgotten that. But that, that reality was swallowed up in this new reality called parenthood. These new loves overtook that old view. So had I, had I technically forgotten that past? No, but it was changed. The way I viewed that was gone. It's a whole new way of thinking, feeling, seeing the world. And the Apostle Paul, he says, that's it. That's what happened when I met Jesus. When he met Jesus, it completely changed his phreneo, his perspective. This new reality swallowed up the old. His gains became losses. His righteousness became rubbish. The way he thinks and feels and looks at his past became different, so different that he could say, I see my past, but now it's like forgetting So has he forgotten his past sins? Has he forgotten the mess that his life was prior to Jesus? And the answer is no, not technically. But the guilt, the shame, the pain, the weight is now eclipsed. It's swallowed up. And the hope of resurrection and the hope of what God is doing in his life. This shift was so fundamental that the very worst things that he had ever done, murder, And the very things that he once dragged behind him and were the punishment he felt like he had to carry with him through his life, those very things that he once hid and denied and tried to cover up, those very things he's now sharing openly with others to talk about how good and amazing and beautiful his Savior is. He's sharing with others so that they can see the immense healing and amazing grace of God so that they can taste the power of the resurrection for themselves. So here's the question. For you, what would it be like if your worst mistakes, your deepest wounds, your most grievous sins, your places of greatest brokenness could somehow be reworked, renewed, given new meaning in Christ to the point that instead of hiding them, ignoring them, repressing them, you actually could share them with others as a sign of God's grace in your life, his goodness, as a celebration of how great he is. What if God wanted to do this for you? What if God wanted to take your past and remake it into a thing of grace, a marker of his love, of his beauty, of his greatness in your life? The Apostle Paul is saying this. Freneo, I want you to think and feel and see your past in a new way, a way that is shaped by what you know God is doing. You know that God is doing in the resurrection of Jesus. That forgetting what is behind, I press on. 
that the mess doesn't go away, but it's better. It gets transformed. It gets changed. Resurrection. That every sin, every selfish act, every doubt, every wound, every lie, every moment of loneliness, bitterness, shame, failure, whatever you're dragging behind you, Jesus wants it all. He wants to take it and he wants to rebuild it into a place where you can meet him, where you can taste and see his unlimited patience, where you can experience his transforming grace. That in the end, the end of the Christian life, is not getting rid of our past. It's letting Jesus use it for his glory. It's meeting him in it. It's holding it in surrender and knowing that he has not abandoned us. It's pressing on knowing that whatever Jesus has not yet fixed in us, it's not because he doesn't love us, but because he wants to use it for something beautiful. So our takeaway, where I want to end this section of this message, is this. We need to remember in order to forget. I'm intentionally playing with words here, but I'm I'm using the language the way the Apostle Paul does in Philippians 3. We need to remember Philippians 3, 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul, in that section, he lays out the good and the bad. He lays it out. He openly shares it with the Philippians in light of the gospel and how the gospel has changed the way he remembers things so that he can press on, so that he can, in some sense, forget his past, so that the power of shame and guilt and fear and all those things that were dragging behind him, he can let go of them that we need to remember in order to forget. One tool that we've used a lot at GVF, and if you've never checked it out, I would encourage you to do, it's in our spiritual growth plan for this week, so you can click on that link. It should be in the notes for this message and also on our website. It's called the five H's and it's just a simple guide to help you think through your past experiences and how those are shaping your present reality and your future direction. It's the five H's. It walks through heritage, heroes, hard times, high points, and hand of God. You can find all those notes online. So I say this, but of course, of course, If you've ever tried to process your past, you know that this is way more complex than just remembering what happened in chronological order. And you almost certainly will need help from God and will need help from others in order to do this in a healthy way. And that's what the next part of this message is about in our interview with Kelly. I hope you'll join us for that.